Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Right now, we think that politics might actually change the world, for better or for worse. It probably won't. It's certainly more likely that climate change, weather, and rising sea levels will have a far more profound impact. The recent UN report on climate indicated that we could be facing real risks within 20 years. So what is the world to do? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Jeff Goodell. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He's the author of five previous books, including Sunnyvale, a memoir about his growing up in Silicon Valley, and Big Coal, a story about the dirty secret behind America's energy future. It is my pleasure to welcome Jeff Goodell here to talk about his latest work, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the remaking of the civilized world. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Do you get a sense at this point that all this talk about the impact of climate change, things like the recent UN report, things like your book, the weather, the hurricanes we've been having, that it's beginning to sink into people the profound effect that that, that all of this could have? Um, I, I think that, you know, the key word there is beginning. Um, I, I think that it is beginning to have an effect. I think that people really are kind of understanding um, the, that this is not some kind of, you know, climate change is not some kind of um, thing you kind of choose to believe in, like the tooth fairy or not, but it's a, a, a real thing that's happening in our world. Um, the consequences are immense. Uh, I, I do think that there's a kind of dawning awareness. Uh, what there's not, though, unfortunately, is a kind of uh, uh, signs of kind of real action being taken uh, to deal with this in the in the certainly in the near term future. And certainly, things like the the UN Climate Report indicate that there's very little time left to take any kind of action that can have a real impact. Well, I. I I would argue with that a little bit. I mean, the, the latest IPCC report is certainly alarming and basically says that, you know, we're going to see, start to see uh, real dramatic changes in our climate in as little as uh, 10 to 15 years. And that if in, in order to hold off what climate scientists have said is the sort of threshold of real dangerous climate change, we need to virtually eliminate fossil fuels from, uh, you know, the world, essentially, uh, by 2050, which is a a huge and um, incredibly difficult task to imagine doing. Um, But on the other hand, you know, everything, every, you know, ton of CO2 that is, uh, you know, not emitted into the atmosphere, every coal plant that is shut down, every, you know, SUV that is swapped out for an electric car, you know, it all has an impact. And um, the more we can reduce CO2 emissions quickly, the more we can reduce the changes that we'll be seeing in the future. And our kids and grandkids will see. Talk about the extent to which this is a global problem today, that this isn't something that's just a U.S. problem. Well, I mean, it's in kind of the the definition of a global problem, really, because um, we all live on one planet and um, the CO2 that... um, we emit from burning fossil fuels, whether it's in um, New York City or Los Angeles or Beijing or Jakarta or Lagos or uh, Bangladesh. It all goes up into the same atmosphere and warms um, our planet. And it's, it's um, you know, so it matters what happens in the United States. Um, it matters what happens in your life and in my life, but it really matters what happens globally. And so this is really a problem 
and an issue that we need to deal with in a um, global manner. We have to, um, United States has to do their share, but so does Europe and so does China and so does India. And, and uh, we're really all in this, in this together. And um, to be kind of use a cliche <laughs> metaphor, we kind of sink or swim uh, together with how we deal with this. Is part of the problem, though, how large the scope is, that it's hard for the average person to kind of get their head around the idea that what they do then can make a difference? Well, I think that's true if you, if you restrict, the, you know, thinking about, you know, individual actions to things like changing light bulbs or, you know, driving electric cars or something. But we really need are the sort of larger policy uh, levers, uh, things like carbon taxes, things like changing of how we build buildings and how, where we build to reduce risks from disasters. A whole, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done to rethink our world, uh, given what's coming with climate change. And by far, the most important individual action that anyone can take is voting. This is not really a, a partisan issue in the sense that I'm not saying one has to vote Democrat or Republic, but Republican, but voting in candidates who understand the scale of the problem and who are willing to talk about it and are willing to do something about it is by far the most empowering and important individual action um, that anyone can take and is really urgent right now because the kind of changes that, that we need to begin to deal with both on the reducing emissions side and on the adapting to higher sea levels and wildfires, all that kind of thing, can only be really dealt with at, on a kind of higher political level. Um, that's where the real leverage is, and that's where individual action really matters. Talk a little bit about the, the cost of some of these consequences, the economic cost of rising sea levels, the fires that you mentioned, and the way in which that might be the ultimate way to really bring this issue home. Well, I mean, just in a, a place like um, Miami, where I focused a lot of my book, um, I, I wrote about, you know, rising seas as a consequence of uh, our warming planet and rising seas are, uh, given the amount of warming that we have on our planet, a kind of given right now, no matter what we do with cutting emissions, we're still going to see significant sea level rise. And the economic implications for a city like Miami, or for that matter, New York or Boston, or even in the Bay Area are, are really enormous. And we're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, um, of real estate and various kinds of infrastructure that is, you know, uh, underwater, literally underwater. And, um, and, and it's not something that's going to happen, you know, this is not an issue for the way distant future when, you know, when there's sharks swimming through the lobby of the Hilton Hotel in Miami Beach. Um, Already, real estate values are being hit uh, because of the increased flooding, and that's just going to get worse over time, which has huge implications for um, cities and communities that are dealing with this because as property values decline, um, tax revenues decline, and cities and states have will have less and less money to deal with these changes, building seawalls and doing the elevating structures and doing the kinds of things that they need to do because Right when they need the additional money for that, the property values are, are, are going to be declining. So it's a real big economic issue, uh, sea level rise, and it's you know a similar thing with um, with wildfires, for example. I mean, it's a little bit different there, but there's still this question of a lot of development depends on pushing out into the boundaries of areas that are high wildfire risk, and a lot of cities and, and counties 
are trying to do that um, for you know, jobs and development reasons. But as we push farther into the regions where there's a higher wildfire risk, um, places like Arizona and Northern California, where my family lives, um, you see more and more, you know, real estate and property that is at risk. Um, the phrase that I really like to use to think about this is that we're kind of manufacturing catastrophes. You know, we're continuing to build our world in a way that doesn't recognize these sort of uh, realities of climate change and the realities that our world is changing very fast and we need to change how we build and how we think about where we live and how we live to accommodate that. What role do things like insurance companies and corporate America have in all of this and really understanding from a purely economic perspective what's transpiring? Well, insurance companies have a huge role, I mean, because they obviously underwrite risk um, and, you know, to the degree that they can accurately, you know, put a cost on that risk, um, that will help drive changes in where we build and how we build and how we think about those risks. Uh, specifically with sea level rise, part of the problem is that most of the insurance for that comes from uh, something called the National Flood Insurance Program, which is a kind of government program which is notoriously um, backward-looking, doesn't really factor in sea level rise, uh, for, encourages rebuilding in low-lying areas, and, and is, is really problematic. So, I mean, I think one of the most important things that can happen is getting more transparency on the real risks that we face, and insurance can be a, a big part of that. Um, corporate America, too, you know, I mean, corporate America obviously has a lot of political influence and they can have a lot of influence on reshaping laws and, and urging um, government to take larger actions on this. Um, a lot of their uh, uh, headquarters and corporations are literally at risk for um, sea level rise and, and, and other things. And some corporations are doing a lot. I mean, Walmart, for example, has really, has really done a lot to push uh, progressive uh, environmental laws to reshape their su supply lines and really force all of their um, uh, people they work with, you know, throughout the world to adopt more sustainable practices. So they have enormous swing weight and they have enormous risks. And so they're a very big player in this. Talk about who some of the other big players are that, that really are at the cutting edge of some of the things that need to be done. Well, I mean, you know, real estate developers are are at the cutting edge of how how we think about where we build and things. Um, clean tech entrepreneurs are at the cutting edge of how we think about generating electricity and generating energy and in general. Um, I think that you know it's obviously and broadly true. I think that you know I, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the energy world. Um, as a journalist, I was just talking to some uh, Midwestern uh, power company executives yesterday. And, you know, President Trump talks a lot about this sort of, you know, war on coal and the comeback of coal. But that's basically a kind of political slogan. Even the Midwestern power company guys who I talked to who um, burn a lot of coal know that there's no future for coal and that the world is going to move, um, you know, pretty quickly away from fossil fuels. That's absolutely the future. And so, you know, to the degree that energy companies and corporations can embrace that and push that faster, that, that is a huge deal. Um, 
so, so certainly they're sort of big players in this. Um, I think Wall Street is a, a big player in this, uh, you know, hedge funds and others who can um, help uh, force companies and force communities to deal with the, the risk that they face uh, on this, the financial risks. Uh, and last point is, you know, bond rating companies like uh, Moody's and others are, are starting to look at climate vulnerability for, for bonds uh, for cities and, and counties and states. And that is having a big impact because cities that are not taking action are going to see, you know, it become more and more difficult for them to, to, to get bonds and get money to, to help deal with these changes they're facing. Of course, Wall Street has the added risk that it itself could be underwater. Well, yes. I mean, this, you know, Wall Street is certainly, you know, in lower Manhattan, you know, at, at, at enormous risk, as we saw with Hurricane Sandy. I mean, there are ideas about um, building uh, what's called the Big U, which is essentially a big wall around lower Manhattan uh, to help keep the waters out. Um, and I think that that will absolutely happen. It may take a decade or so. Um, and, you know, in the short term, a lot of the big companies there, Wall Street firms have done a lot to, you know, make their buildings and their enterprise themselves, uh, you know, more storm ready, more resistant to uh, this kind of outages and problems that they saw after Hurricane Sandy. So that was a, a warning for them. And they're pretty savvy about about all of that. But ultimately, you know, the future of Lower Manhattan is is a big question. I mean, there will have to be a wall um, built there to protect that that real estate because it's very, very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about these storms that we've seen of late and what we might be expecting over the next several years. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, so these storms, it's you know, it's well known that um, climate scientists have long known that as the as the atmosphere heats up, storms are going to get more intense, and that with um, higher air temperatures and things, the, the, um, the air is capable of carrying more moisture, more water. So we're seeing these, you know, dramatic, these, these hurricanes that are not just big storms, but are carrying a, a huge amount of water. We saw that with, uh, with Michael recently. We saw it with Florence. We saw it with Hurricane Harvey in Houston last year. Um, so, so the, the, the in, increased power of an intensity and rainfall, of these storms is not really surprising. And it's certainly, um, the shape of things to come. Uh, but I, I think that the real difficult thing to grasp here is that, you know, the scientists know basic parameters about what this warming world will do and how it will make storms more intense and things. But it's very difficult to really predict in any kind of uh, uh, concrete way, you know, that we're going to have X number of storms more in the next decade or, um, you know, in, in a certain way, uh, we're in a situation where kind of all bets are off about how crazy this can get and how quickly. I mean, you know, NOAA, the, the top uh, science agency in, in America, you know, is talking about adding a, a category six uh, to the already category one through five for, for storms. Um, we don't really know how, you know, what to expect in the sense of how much worse it can get and how quickly, but mm -hmm. they are certainly alarming signs. You mentioned Miami before and, and other cities that are in real danger. What do they have the ability to do at this point? Is it really just about, as you said, with Lower Manhattan, just building more walls? Well, certainly in Miami, it's not. I mean, one of the tricky things and difficult things about 
um, thinking about the implications of sea level rise, both economically and, you know, just sort of for the future of, of um, these cities. You know, in my book, I traveled all around the world and looked at different cities and how they're dealing with this. And um, there is no sort of one size fit all solution um, there. It's not as simple as, well, we're just going to you know, build a wall or not. And um, if we build a wall, we're fine. And if we don't build a wall, you know, we're in trouble. Uh, and Miami is emblematic of that because um, Miami is, you know, as anyone knows, has been to South Florida, very flat. Um, there's a lot of real estate built right on the water. And it's built on um, basically Swiss cheese, a kind of porous limestone that uh, lets water go right through it. So you, the upshot of all this is that you can't really build walls in a place like Miami because the water will go right underneath them and come up the other side. So Miami is a very difficult future because um, seawalls essentially won't work. Uh, every engineer knows that. And because it's so flat, there's not a lot of high ground to, to move to. Um, so you really, if you think seriously about the future of Miami, it's a sort of, you know, Venice-like future. Um, and that is certainly doable, possible in an engineering sense, but it's a massive transformation of this place. And it's a lot of questions about how fast that can happen and what will happen to a lot of places that are just, you know, submerged. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of lost uh Real estate, there's going to be a lot of migration out of there, I think, and it's going to be a radically different place in the in the not-so-distant future. Mm -hmm. And Venice is another place. You mentioned Venice, another place you look at in the book. Yeah, Venice, is, you know, as everyone knows, is, you know, the sort of poster child for a sort of sinking city. Um, uh, and in the past, that was largely um, because of subsidence. Uh, they were pumping the groundwater out underneath the city for various industrial reasons and for drinking water. And so the city was sinking and that was causing more and more flooding. And, and they've sort of fixed that. But, but now the sea level rise uh, is increasingly encroaching into the lagoon. And so that even on normal high tides, you have water flowing into the Piazza San Marco and into the city. And Miami's really in, I mean, Venice is really in a tough spot also because uh, with all those historic buildings, they're not easy to just elevate them, um, to, to raise them higher. And so what they've done is spent about $7 billion building these giant barriers outside of the lagoon uh, to kind of wall off the lagoon that, um, that surrounds, Miami, uh, surrounds Venice and try to keep the rising seas out. Um, and it's, you know, it might work for a little while, but it's a big problem because they spent 25 years engineering these giant barriers which the, the uh, Italian engineers call the Ferrari on the seafloor because it's a very fancy wall that kind of goes down when it's not needed and it comes up when there's high tides and storm surges. But they didn't really factor in sea level rise. So it's going to be obsolete in a decade or so. And, you know, how, how a place like Venice protects itself is, is very, uh, up, very much up in question. I think that, you know, eventually they may have to build kind of, you know, um, a moat-like wall around the entire city to keep the uh, to keep the waters out, and it will be a kind of you know entirely protected, but sort of you know dead waterway all around it. Mm -hmm. To what extent is there enough money to begin to address all of these needs, even over the next twenty years? I mean, is it just something that that just is going to be too expensive to really address? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at the Pentagon budget or something like that. There's just in the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of money out there, right? I mean, um, we spend billions and billions of dollars developing, you know, new fighter jets and, and things like that. Um, and it's not, it's not, so it's not actually a, a lack of money. I mean, this, the implications of sea level rise, for example, for just, just for U.S. cities, uh, and much less globally, is, is enormous. Um, but, you know, there are ways of thinking about this that could, you know, you could see, you know, um, private capital coming in and helping out, um, various kinds of philanthropic partnerships. I mean, there's ways of thinking about uh, about this that would encourage rebuilding in, in um, smarter ways and all of that. But you're, it's, there's, there's going to be huge, huge economic losses. There's no, just no question about it. I mean, places like Boston and New, and New York and even to some degree, you know, Miami are, are going to um, figure out ways to deal with this that are interesting and creative. But there's a whole lot of smaller places, less glamorous places, less rich places that are that are not going to be, and they're just going to be drowned. Um, and that's true broadly around the world. You know, there's not going to be you know Danish architects building eight billion dollar walls in Bangladesh. You know, um, where there's millions of people who live at sea level. So you can have a lot of people on the move, and the the kind of political implications of that of all these displaced people, not just in the U.S. but around the world, are are uh, obviously enormous. Jeff Goodell, the book is "The Water Will Come: Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World." Jeff, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you.